this morning we find an account on the ministry of John the Baptist. John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 19 to 34. I hope you've turned there, and I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You reveal yourself clearly in your word. You have not remained silent. You have spoken to us and we pray now for ears to hear. We ask God that you would give us grace to believe and understand the things that are revealed in your word concerning Jesus Christ. I pray that you would keep me from error. I pray, Father, that you would grant your church discernment, that she would hold fast to the truth, Father, and so be built up and saved on the last day. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Friends, in the search for truth, few things matter more than a good witness. Think of a courtroom trial where the jury is tasked with rendering a truthful verdict. What often makes the difference in those situations? The testimony of a reliable witness. Or think of the work of a historian who is tasked with retelling a significant event in history. What makes the difference in the historian's job? Often an eyewitness who can tell him with his own account what really happened. In the search for truth, few things matter more than a good, reliable, faithful witness. And that idea helps us get our bearings this morning in John chapter 1. When you first read this passage, you might think, this seems out of place. We've just finished the prologue 
of John's gospel with its soaring truth about Jesus Christ. And now with very little transition, we're out in the wilderness with a guy dressed in camel skin who only preaches one message. It's a rather abrupt transition in chapter 1, isn't it? Why do we go from the glory of the incarnation to the wilderness beyond the Jordan? Well, the answer is that dynamic of witness. In the search for truth, few things are more important than a good witness. And in the Gospel of John, the first witness is none other than John the Baptist. He begins a parade of witnesses that runs through the entire book. And each witness has the same job. That's to tell the truth regarding Jesus Christ. That's why this passage shows up here right after the prologue. Because John the Baptist is the first witness. And his role is to tell us the truth regarding who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, most Christians don't know what to do with John the Baptist. (laughs) He seems rather strange to us. Often because he is depicted as this renegade preacher who is out in the desert ranting about straight roads and calling people to repentance. Most Christians don't know what to do with John, but the reality is that uh, without without John the Baptist, you cannot tell the story of the gospel faithfully and biblically. John the Baptist is that significant. Think about it. All four gospels include material on John the Baptist. He's the first figure to show up in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Luke includes an incredible amount of detail regarding John's birth. So according to the New Testament, you can't really tell the Gospel story without John the Baptist. But at the same time, the New Testament is equally as clear that John the Baptist is not the focus. If the Gospel story were a play... John the Baptist is not the main character. If the gospel story were a road trip, John the Baptist is just a sign on the highway telling you how many miles till you get to the destination. That's the irony of John the Baptist's ministry. His importance lies in the fact that he's not the most important person in the story. His ministry succeeds the more he decreases. That's what makes John the Baptist unique. That's what makes him a faithful witness. He doesn't want the spotlight. John the Baptist steps out of the spotlight in order to point people to Jesus Christ. So for our purposes today, that's what we need to do. We need to pay attention to John the Baptist, for he's certainly key to the gospel story. You can't tell the gospel without John the Baptist on some level. So we need to pay attention to him. But the way we pay attention to John is by seeing how he points us away from himself. And toward the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the key to the text. John the Baptist does have something to say to you and me. But his message is fundamentally about seeing Jesus Christ. So we need to study John. But not for his sake. We study John the Baptist in order to see Jesus. And as we do that. We're going to find that John the Baptist is preaching to us three truths. At least in this passage. That's a good way to think about this text. As though John the Baptist were preaching a sermon to us. And his sermon has three points. Because he is a good Baptist. (laughs) 
John's going to preach to us three points, and the takeaway of each one is meant to lead us to the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, let's think a little more about Christ through the lens of John the Baptist. We begin in verses 19 to 23, where John the Baptist proclaims to us the priority of repentance. That's his first message, the priority of repentance. The passage actually begins on an ominous note. Look again at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? This is the first time that the Jewish religious leaders show up in the Gospel of John, but it will not be the last time. As we will learn, that title, the Jews, represents those in Israel who did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. And the religious establishment formed a large portion of that contingent. They show up in verse 19, demanding an answer from John the Baptist. Their question seems innocent enough. Who are you? We know from the other gospel accounts that numerous people were flocking to John the Baptist, so it's natural on some level for the religious leadership of the nation to investigate. They want to know who this wild man in the wilderness is. But this seemingly natural question sets off a back and forth that reveals there's more to this story at this point. There's more to their motives. Follow along with the conversation. First of all, the Baptist answers by denying that he is the Christ. Look at verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, in John's day, messianic expectations were rather high. And people were often caught up in these fanciful movements that claimed to be led by the Messiah. But John the Baptist could not be clearer. He confesses without denying that he is not the Christ. He is not building an army in the wilderness to overthrow Jerusalem. He is not coming to clean out the corrupt priesthood. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. Now, why is that denial significant? It doesn't seem all that significant to us. We don't expect John to be the Messiah. But why is his denial significant? Because right away, it tells the Levites and the Pharisees and the priests, right away it tells them, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not the guy you should be focused on. Right away, it tells the religious leaders that to understand this man in the wilderness, you need to be looking for someone else. You need to be looking for someone greater. Still, the religious leaders are not satisfied with that answer. It seems that they are caught up in some end times fervor. So they ask John the Baptist another question. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. In verse 21, both Elijah and the prophet refer to Old Testament passages about the end of the age. In Malachi chapter 4, God said that he would raise up Elijah before the day of judgment. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses predicted that another prophet would come, would arise in his place, and to him the people would listen. But John the Baptist denies being either of those figures. He's not Elijah and he's not the prophet to come. Now this is somewhat surprising, considering that Jesus in Matthew 11 explicitly identifies John the Baptist with Elijah. 
So, do Jesus and John the Baptist disagree? Do the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke contradict one another? No, hardly. That's not the case. Rather, John the Baptist is denying the religious leaders' misguided expectations. They expected Elijah to return in a fiery whirlwind of judgment, just like the first Elijah went to heaven in a fiery chariot. They expected Elijah to bring the judgment of God. So when John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah, he means I'm not that kind of Elijah. I'm not here to unleash the judgment of God. By now... The questioners are getting frustrated. This interrogation is not working out like they planned. Look at verse 22. and You can hear their exasperation. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? There's a threat in there, I think. They say, Look, John, very important people sent us. And if you don't answer, they're going to be upset. So you better play ball. Tell us who you are. And John answers in a way that takes us to the core of his message. Verse 23, this is what we've been driving at. John said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Friends, that's a masterful response from John the Baptist. Rather than get caught up in their debate, John answers with Scripture. Build your ministry on Scripture and there's not much for people to argue about, right? John quotes from Isaiah 40 where the prophet called God's people to prepare for the Lord's arrival. You may recall that in Isaiah 40, the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. They were separated from God. But Isaiah's good news was that this exile would end And that's why he was preaching about straight roads in the wilderness. Because God was coming. The Lord was returning. The people were going to be reunited with God. God's people would return to Him. And therefore, make the road ready. Make the highway straight. Repent. For the Lord is coming. That was Isaiah's message. And so now you can see the connection here with John chapter 1. John the Baptist is the voice of Isaiah 40. He's the voice announcing God's arrival. Again, he's telling them, you guys are worried about me. You need to be looking for the one that comes after me. Even God. This is why John came baptizing in the Jordan. Because he's calling God's people to get ready. And they get ready through repentance. In fact, if you look down at verse 25, it is this specific act of repentance that the religious leaders don't understand. The Pharisees can understand telling Gentiles to repent. But Israelites? Telling Israelites to repent? That's what they can't understand. That's unheard of on some level. And that's why they can't figure John the Baptist out, because they fail to see their own need for repentance. The Pharisees and the priests and the Levites are so comfortable in their own standing That they miss the fulfillment of God's word. They miss the voice calling out in the wilderness. They miss the mercy that is held out to them by this message, this messenger calling them to repent. As we think about some application here, I want to make sure that we avoid any misunderstanding. 
The baptism of John the Baptist was unique in redemptive history. And his time period is over. John baptized for the purpose of repentance. But Jesus Christ brings a greater baptism. The baptism of the Spirit that happens at conversion. Whenever someone places their faith in Jesus' name. So, you and I cannot follow the baptism of John the Baptist today. We can't follow his ministry in that regard. But there is a bridge from John the Baptist to us, and that bridge has to do with repentance. Repentance. God's work in a person's life most often begins with repentance. God usually prepares the way in a person's heart by calling him to repentance through his word. So we can't follow the baptism of John. No one needs to go to Israel and be baptized in the Jordan in order to make sure that you're checking the box about John the Baptist. Nobody needs to do that. But each of us does need to take seriously this call to repentance and faith. Repentance, biblically defined, is twofold. Repentance is twofold. It is to turn from sin in order to follow God in obedient holiness. I hope that you hear me on this point. The goal of repentance is not simply to stop sinning. Rather, the goal of repentance is to begin pursuing God in holiness. You see, repentance is not solely a negative act. Stop sinning. Repentance is a positive act to pursue God in faithfulness with His Word. Repentance is twofold. You turn from sin in order to follow God. In fact, if you don't have the follow God component, if you just have the turn from sin, you're missing half the point. This is why one of my favorite confessions of faith, the abstract of principles, defines repentance as an evangelical grace. Repentance is an evangelical grace where a person endeavors to do what? Walk before God so as to please Him in all things. Isn't that compelling? I find that compelling. Not just stop sinning, but walk before God in a way that pleases Him. Repentance, biblically understood, is not something that we should avoid. Repentance is not something that you should dread. Repentance is a grace from God. That leads you deeper in a life that pleases Him. Brothers and sisters, do you regularly pray for God to give you a repentant heart? Do you regularly ask God to open your eyes to see where you ought to turn from sin and follow Him more faithfully? Are you open to the input of other Christians who might see things in your life that you don't see? Other believers who might be a means of grace to you, helping you to walk in repentance. Listen, this is something that every believer needs. You never outgrow the need for repentance. Every Christian is simultaneously a saint and a sinner. And that means that every Christian every day needs Repentance and faith. If your idea of being a Christian is that you don't need to repent of your sin, then you have the wrong idea. 
If your view of Christianity includes keeping up the appearance that you have everything all together, then friend, you need to re-examine what the Bible says Christianity is. Being a Christian is not about keeping up the appearance that you have all of the things together. Being a Christian fundamentally is repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. You never outgrow that need. Every day, we stand in need of repentance. And so I hope you hear this message from John the Baptist. His ministry is different from our day, yes. But the core of his message connects with us, and it connects with us through this priority of repentance. Am I walking in repentance before the Lord? That's what I want you to ask today. The second message from John the Baptist comes in verses 24 to 28. John proclaims to us the necessity of humility. The necessity of humility. In verse 24, the Apostle John tells us that the Pharisees are involved in this interrogation. The Pharisees will show up throughout the book, often in a negative role, and that begins here with more questions. Notice verse 25. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you were neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Again, baptism was not unusual in John's day. Gentile converts to Judaism were baptized, and some other groups practiced some form of baptism. But what makes John's baptism unique is that he's administering it to Jews, to Israelites. That would have been very unusual, which is why the religious leaders ask about his authority. Who gave you the authority to do this? Is essentially what they're saying. If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then you're not more important than us. So who gave you the authority to do this? John the Baptist, for his part, does not defend himself. This is incredibly significant. John the Baptist is a divinely authorized messenger with a God-given ministry. The religious leaders should listen to him. They should not question him. So I don't know about you, but I would be pretty quick to defend myself if I were in John the Baptist's shoes at this point. This would seem like the perfect opportunity to unleash the powerhouse sermon where he says, who do you think you are? You should be listening to me. But that's not what John the Baptist does. Not in the least. He seems completely unconcerned that they're questioning him. Rather than defend himself, the Baptist puts the spotlight on Christ. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. So the religious leaders have come spoiling for a fight and John the Baptist doesn't take the bait. He doesn't get into an argument about his own standing. He doesn't even defend his own ministry. Instead, John fulfills his ministry by pointing them to Jesus. By telling them to pay attention to the one who is to come. And he goes on in verse, seven, in verse 27 to clarify without any doubt that the one to come is greater than him. Listen again, verse 27. Among you stands one you do not even know. Even, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In first century Judaism, a pupil was expected to do a lot of things for his teacher 
the list is actually quite extensive. But the one thing that a pupil was never required to do if his teacher was untie and take off his sandals. Not even a household servant was required to do such a menial job because it was demeaning and dirty. Not even servants were required to do that. And yet, here is John the Baptist. I want you to appreciate this. Here is John the Baptist, the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, the last in the line of God's old covenant prophets. His forefathers are Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Amos. He's the last in the line of the old covenant prophets. And here is John saying that he's not worthy to even untie Jesus' sandals. Friends, that is remarkable humility. Even a willingness to be less than a servant. Not to be a servant, to be less than a servant. And why does John say this? Is this just for pretense? Is this one of those moments of faux humility? You know what I'm talking about? Is this this just self-deprecating? No. John the Baptist humbles himself So that the focus will be where it belongs, on Jesus Christ. In the face of opposition, John doesn't defend himself. He doesn't puff himself up. He doesn't rattle off his accomplishments. He doesn't point to all of his diplomas on the wall. Instead, John the Baptist proclaims the greatness of Christ. That's what he does. He humbles himself in comparison to Jesus. Friends, we can again bridge the divide from John the Baptist to us with this simple observation. Here's the observation. Humility is the indispensable ingredient for any life that would exalt Jesus Christ. Humility is the one thing that you cannot do without if you want your life to be used to exalt Christ. Humility. Even when we encounter opposition... The only right response is to humble ourselves and keep putting the focus on Jesus. I find this really instructive from the life of John the Baptist. Think about it this way. The quickest way for John the Baptist's ministry to go south would be for him to get into an argument and defend himself against the accusations of the Pharisees. Because what happens if John does that? He takes the spotlight off of Jesus and he puts the spotlight on himself. So do you see the absolute necessity of humility? Whether we are supported or opposed, the indispensable ingredient is always the same. Humility. So are you, are you willing to go lower in order that Christ would be exalted? Are you willing to even be misunderstood if that means Jesus gets center stage? That's what John is teaching us. Of all the virtues in the Christian life, humility, the willingness to be less than a servant, is perhaps the most indispensable virtue of all. That's the message of John the Baptist to us. Are we willing to walk that humble road too? The passage now shifts to the next day. You see it there in verse 29. The next day. The questioning has ended. And now we get to hear John the Baptist preach. In verses 29 to 34, he proclaims to us a third and final truth. The provision of a Savior. Repentance, humility, and now his last message. The provision of a Savior. 
this final paragraph is a perfect summary of John the Baptist's ministry. What did this preacher in the wilderness do? He pointed other people to Christ. That was his job. Through his baptism and through his preaching, he prepared the way of the Lord. In terms of content, John the Baptist announces to the crowd who Jesus is. He reveals Jesus' identity in his preaching. Notice how he does this. First of all, John the Baptist proclaims Jesus as the one who makes atonement for sin. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now in the realm of biblical studies, there's all sorts of discussion as to what John the Baptist meant by that title, the Lamb of God. For my part, I take the simplest option to be the most faithful. The Lamb of God recalls Israel's exodus from Egypt, where the Passover was celebrated and those who were covered by the Lamb's blood escaped destruction. So with prophetic inspiration, that's John the Baptist's, uh, John the Baptist's sermon. Jesus is the true and greater Lamb of God. Jesus is the one who will shed His blood to make atonement for sin. He is the substitute. He dies in the place of his people, just like the Passover lamb died in the place of Israel. He is the substitute, and he is the sacrifice. He dies. He sheds his blood in order to satisfy the wrath of God, the substitute sacrifice. So I know that the cross Calvary is a long way off in John's gospel, but do you see how the theology of the cross is already at work? Already the cross is coming into view. What happens at the cross? Jesus dies as the substitutionary, sacrificial Lamb of God. And why does Jesus die as the substitute? In order to satisfy God's wrath through the shedding of his blood, thus making atonement for his people. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so with prophetic inspiration, John the Baptist proclaims that lasting forgiveness will come through this man who is the Lamb of God. So we ought to notice, I just want to point out to you, we ought to notice that the first message we hear preached about Jesus by the first witness in John's gospel concerns what? The atonement. The cross. The first message about Jesus from the first witness is the message, this is the one who will die in your place for your sin. Please don't miss that, friends. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first message from the first witness points us to the cross. If you want to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, then you have to understand him through his cross, where the Lamb of God sheds his blood for sinners. That's not the only thing John the Baptist teaches about Jesus. Not only is Jesus the Lamb of God, but John also proclaims that Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. He makes atonement, and he's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 30 and 31. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
Now, what does John the Baptist mean when he says that he did not know Jesus? Well, he can't mean that he literally did not know Jesus because they were cousins. Rather, John means that he did not know Jesus was the Christ. He needed divine revelation from God in order to see that truth. And that moment of revelation came at Jesus' baptism. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus. Most likely, that's a reference to Jesus' baptism, where the Spirit of God descended to rest upon the Son of God. And verse 32 says that John the Baptist saw that moment. And it was through that divine revelation that John embraced the truth. Look at verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So through divine revelation, look for the Holy Spirit, God said, through divine revelation, John the Baptist comes to see who Jesus is. Now, these verses might not seem very significant to us. We may think that this is more about John than it is about us because we didn't see these events. But in reality, friends, verses 32 and 33 are like a crossroads of biblical truth. This is like a tapestry of scriptural promises that are all woven together in a remarkable way. So many Old Testament passages about the Messiah are coming together in verses 32 and 33. There's honestly too many of us, too many of them for us to cover all of them. It's a remarkable list of how much Old Testament shows up in those two verses. We can't cover all of them. But we are going to cover a few of them. Because it's too rich to ignore. Just listen to this survey of all of these Old Testament promises that are coming together in verse 32. Isaiah chapter 11. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon the King who comes from David's line. And this King will reign over a renewed world where righteousness and peace dwell. Jesus is that Spirit-empowered King who reigns on David's throne. Isaiah 42, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon God's chosen servant. And this servant will be a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind. Jesus is that chosen servant who brings good news to the nations. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon God's servant who proclaims liberty to the captives and, and who rebuilds what has been ruined so that from the rubble of sin, God's people take root and grow, giving glory to God. Jesus is the herald of that good news. Ezekiel 36, God promises that one day He would put His Spirit in the hearts of His people. Can you imagine that? God's going to put His Spirit in people's hearts, so that they would walk in His ways. And Jeremiah 31, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit would signal that the new covenant has come. Jesus is the Spirit-empowered Christ who pours out the Spirit in the inauguration of a new covenant. All of those Old Testament passages are jamming together in verse 32. It's John's way of saying, stop paying attention to me. Look at this man, Jesus. Pay attention to Him. The Pharisees and the priests and the Levites, they want answers from John. And John is doing everything he can to say, you're missing the point. 
Don't pay attention to me. Don't get caught up in me. Don't worry about where I come from. Look at the one who comes after me. He's the Christ. He's the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. It's like a parable for so much of modern ministry. We get caught up in things that are not Jesus. And every time you come to the Bible, the voice of God's prophets, the voice of God's word is saying, you're missing the point. Pay attention to the Lord. See the one who comes after John. Even the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. And that means verse 34 is the only fitting conclusion. Look again, verse 34. John says, I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is the first witness to Jesus in this gospel. And John the Baptist's testimony is crystal clear. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who makes atonement. Jesus is the Spirit-anointed Messiah, the one who brings a new covenant. And Jesus is God's Son, the Father's only Son, the Father's chosen servant, the one who reveals God to the world. Friends, if you're not a Christian today, if you're not repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of your soul, if you're not a Christian this is the essential message of the Bible. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. You may have any number of questions about the Bible and about Christianity and about what it means to be a Christian. And those, those questions are not unimportant. But friend, this, these verses are giving you the message that you must reckon with today. The only way to have forgiveness is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way to receive God's Spirit and live a life pleasing to Him is through faith in Jesus' name. The only way to know God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. If you are not a Christian today, please do not get sidetracked with any other questions. I'm not saying your questions are unimportant, I'm saying this is the question you have to reckon with first. In fact, our prayer, if you're not a Christian this morning, perhaps you're visiting the church or perhaps you've come to church with mom and dad. Our prayer, if you're not a Christian today, our prayer is that you would turn from your sin. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And that you would trust in the name of Jesus Christ who shed his blood to make atonement for all who believe. Won't you believe that good news today, friend? If you don't know the Lord, won't you believe that good news? I pray that even now the Spirit of God poured out by the Son of God would work in your heart to reconcile you to the Father through faith in Jesus' name. Praise God, a Savior has been given, even Jesus Christ. Friends, in that search for truth, few things are as important as a good, reliable, faithful witness. And by God's grace, John the Baptist is a faithful witness to the truth. Through his testimony, we've seen the priority of repentance, the necessity of humility, and most importantly, the provision of a Savior. That's John's message. So may God give us repentant hearts. May he make us humble servants. And may he use us to spread the renown and fame of Christ to the very ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, our attempts to unfold the glory of God and Jesus Christ are always feeble. Lord, so much truth, so much glory, so much good news resides in these verses. And our attempts to explain them and preach them and apply them are always feeble. And so we plead with you, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would come now and impress upon our hearts the truth of the Scriptures, that we would be repentant, that we would be humble. Father, that we would embrace Christ by faith and that we would then spend every day of our lives making Him known in whatever realms you have given us to serve. Oh God, please, please come now and bear fruit from your word by the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.